Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, we're going to look at verses 12 through 14 this morning before we come to the Lord's table, and we'll pick up reading at verse 9 to get a sort of running start into it. Colossians 1, we'll begin reading at verse 9. Before we do so, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we delight to be instructed in prayer and also to see the things that we're called to pray for and the things that are true of us. And so this morning, as we look at Thanksgiving in particular and what it is we're called to thank you for and to be thankful for, we ask that you would teach us. And so make us a thankful people, we pray, as we look at this passage. Forgive us where we have been entitled or complaining and make much of your son as we walk through this passage. For Jesus' sake, amen. Colossians 1 at verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Most far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, if you take a look at the beginning of verse 12, we're told that, Uh, We are those who are giving thanks to the Father. Paul is giving thanks. The Colossians are giving thanks to the Father. The Christian life, we could argue, is to be defined by thanksgiving, by giving to God thanks and praise in prayer, but also just in life, and more than that, even in attitude. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 56, the sting of death is sin, the power of Sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Colossians 3.15, we'll get to that in a few months. Be thankful. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always and for everything. Well, there's there's quite a thanksgiving. Give thanks always and give thanks for everything. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. And we might be asking ourselves, why is giving thanks to God the Father such a big deal? Why is the Bible filled with commands to us as his people to give him thanks? And I want us to take a look at maybe the ugliness of ungratefulness, because it hopefully will be useful uh, to spur us on to see how important thanksgiving is. Remember the story in Luke 17, uh, Jesus told or uh, Jesus encountered Luke 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed, where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give 
prays to God except this foreigner. And he said to him, rise, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus healed 10 people of their leprosy. One came back to thank him. And Jesus highlights this. We're, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine at? Why are they not coming back to give thanks to me? And it's just an ugly picture of the ungratefulness of our human hearts. And here's another illustration of unthankfulness. The Lady Elgin was a, a ship that was often left Chicago on Lake Michigan. And on September 8, 1860, the Lady Elgin was carrying about 400 passengers from Chicago to Milwaukee. And partway there, another ship, the Augusta, collided with it. And within about half an hour, the Lady Elgin sank. And about 300 people died. There were 98 people who survived, but they were left having to swim on their own and in the hopes that they would be rescued. And Edward Spencer was a seminary student who heard of this event and went quickly to the shore. And over the course of about six hours, he saved 17 people in the midst of this storm. So think huge waves are battling on the shore of Lake Michigan, right by Chicago. And he's out there with a rope tied around his waist, somebody standing on shore, and he's going out there trip after trip trying to rescue people who are drowning, some of them just football fields away from the shore. And he's continuing to go out there and out there. And years later, a pastor by the name of R.A. Torrey used the Lady Elgin shipwreck as a sermon illustration. And someone told him that Edward Spencer was actually in the audience. And at this time, he was quite old and gray. And R.A. Torrey invited him to the stage and asked him what he remembered from that event. And Edward Spencer said, only this, sir. Of the 17 people I saved, not one of them ever thanked me. Again, just an ugly portrait of, hey, you saved me, and I just leave. Off I go. And what are we to be thankful for? Well, we're going to notice three things. I want us to notice in this passage that we are called to thank God, and particularly for three things. Number one, he qualified us for an inheritance. Number two, he delivered and transferred us. And number three, he redeemed and forgives us. So those three things I want us to look at. We're called to be Thankful to God first, because he qualified us for an inheritance, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, the language of qualified is interesting language. It means to make sufficient or to render fit or to make worthy. And qualifications, we understand, are earned, right? You have to earn being qualified. The verb is active, and what the passage makes clear is that God is the actor. It's the Father who's qualified us. We're thanking him because he has qualified us. He earned our qualification. Now, it's a bit different than the way we normally think about being qualified. If a racer qualifies for pole position, he and the teammates of his are the ones who pulled it off, right? They qualified themselves. If a student qualifies for entrance into college, they're the ones who qualified themselves. And uh, the Chiefs and the 49ers have qualified themselves to be in the Super Bowl, right? They beat everybody else they qualified for than competition. So qualifications are something which an individual brings to the table, something that they've earned. We understand that. But this verse speaks of God qualifying people, God qualifying believers, God working as the only actor to qualify us as Christians for an inheritance. This is quite astounding which means there will be no bragging rights in heaven, right? In this life, we can be tempted to boast and parade ourselves, but when we arrive in heaven, we will be reminded and thankfully delivered from our boasting and pride because we'll come face to face with this reality that everyone there has been qualified by God. None of us qualified for heaven in our own strength. 
and qualifications are required. That's something else I want to highlight about it. God alone has qualified us for this inheritance. The qualifications are required. In order to run the 100-meter dash in the state final in Iowa, you have to go through qualifying rounds, right? You first have to qualify for state. But once you get there, you might be, let's say, uh, in the Drake Relays, you might be one of 100 runners. Well, there's not 100 lanes wide on the track, right? So you have to have qualifying heats to figure out who are going to be these eight people, men or women, who run this race in the final. And so you have to make it through qualifying. So by the time you see the final race that might make it to television on some of our stations, people have already gone through a lot of qualifying. They've already run the race two, maybe three times to get there. And we see the last race. College students are required to qualify for college, right? Whether that be through a GED, an ACT score, an SAT score, or through grades, or all the above. We have to qualify to make it into college. And in the same way, no one gets a share of this inheritance that Paul's talking about here. The share of the inheritance, which is heaven, which is eternal life, without being qualified. The inheritance which all believers have coming their way requires qualification. It requires worthiness. It requires being fit for it. And what we know to be true is that Jesus has met the requirements for us so that in him we are qualified. And Jesus is the only way anyone can qualify for this inheritance. I want to pause for a moment. For any of us who don't believe, who don't know the Lord, I don't want you to be surprised on the day of judgment. The entrance exam for heaven is only administered in this life. If you don't take the exam and pass the exam in this life, it will have been too late to take the exam on the day of judgment. Here's the exam. You believe in Jesus. Do you believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Do you believe you're a sinner and you need Jesus in order to qualify for heaven? Do you believe he is the only way back to the Father, that he's the way, the truth, the life, the only Savior? If so, you pass the exam. If you believe in him, if you trust him, then you have just taken the entrance into heaven exam and you will enter in there, guaranteed. But if you don't, Either you refuse to take the exam or you flunk the exam because you say, maybe Jesus is a great teacher, but I don't need him to save me. I'm not that sinful. Then on the last day, you will discover that you cannot gain entrance into heaven. And if you want to then try and gain it, the exam is no longer being administered. So again, I urge, I plead with you that you would accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you might know this inheritance, that you might receive this inheritance free having God qualify you for it. And something else I want to highlight here that's in the passage, verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So the inheritance is portrayed as light or it's in light. The inheritance of the saints is in the light. So hell is described in the Bible. Jesus describes it as what? Outer darkness, right? What heaven is described is as light. Light is used to describe heaven. The devil's realm is darkness. Darkness is the only thing the devil is capable of producing or meriting. Light is the inheritance of God's people. Light in the Bible has to do with hope and joy. And maybe in one of the greatest descriptions of heaven in Revelation 22, 5, we're told this, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So that's just a brief two-word description, or actually three words, uh, in the light is where the inheritance will be. Heaven is described as a world of light here. Let me just ask 
a question of us without answering it for each of us to answer. What ought people who are qualified for an inheritance in the next life do with their current lives? What would our attitudes be like? If you were just to look at a person as an outside party and say, if this person was qualified for an inheritance in heaven, what would their life look like? What would their thinking be? What would their attitude be like? How would they approach life? What kind of buoyancy would that give them? What kind of joy? What kind of joy does it give you and me to have been qualified by God for this? He did the qualification for us. We just received it. The second thing we're told regarding uh, what to be thankful for. First, that God qualified us for an inheritance. Secondly, that he delivered us and transferred us. So verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's two things going on here, delivered and transferred. The word delivered has to do with to deliver from danger or destruction or to pull to oneself, to rescue out of danger to oneself. That's what deliverance has to do with. There's an emphasis upon the trouble that one is in, which we need to be removed from. So to be rescued, to be delivered implies that there's something we need to be delivered from. Now, most people envision human beings to be in danger of very little. Right? At the very worst, we view ourselves in danger of a car accident or cancer or the loss of a job. We might view the worst predicament as a health problem or a financially difficult problem. But the passage before us makes something very clear that the domain of darkness is the place that we've been delivered from. And so the domain of darkness is something characteristic of all human beings uh, by nature. It's the, that's characteristic of us. We reside there. Every human being by nature, before we've been delivered from it, resides in the domain of darkness. Now, the word domain is the word for power, authority, especially moral authority and influence. So it's a realm that exists, and it's a realm of power. And Jesus can call Satan the prince of the power of the earth. Satan's the one who reigns over this domain of darkness. And it's a domain of darkness. It's not a domain of light. But we've been delivered from the domain of darkness. Luke twenty-two fifty-three. Jesus says when he was being betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is your hour, the power of darkness. In Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. The Apostle Paul spoke of the ministry the Lord had called him to, and he described it this way in Acts 26. I'm sending you to open their eyes, the Lord said to Paul, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Their darkness is equated with the power of Satan and lights equated with God. So the kingdom of darkness is where Satan reigns, where he exercised the authority God has allowed him to have in this present age. And what Paul is saying is that each of us believers has been delivered from that domain. We came into the world under that authority, where Satan, as it were, was our master, reigning over us, and all we could do was sin. We have now been delivered from that realm out of the darkness. And we've been transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God's love or the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We've been transferred into that kingdom. Now, the word transferred is a change of situation or place. It's to be transferred or relocated from one place to another. And what this passage makes clear is that all believers have already been transferred. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness 
into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We've been transferred into a kingdom of love. Heaven is a kingdom of love. God's kingdom is a kingdom of love. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of love. And it's a kingdom where Jesus is in control. It's a kingdom where everything is being made right, put right, where the reigning influence in our lives is now Jesus rather than Satan. It's now the Holy Spirit rather than Satan and all of his demonic power. And this is such an encouragement for us as believers, or it ought to be. I want us to consider something. The Christian life is a life where we have been transferred, not where we are trying to transfer ourselves. Every single Christian is one who has already been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. This has already happened to every single believer. Your transfer has already been taken place. If you believe in Jesus today, you've already been brought out. You are not living under the authority and realm of darkness. You're not living in that domain anymore. You are actually in a different kingdom. Just like if you flew from New York over to Paris, you would be transferred over to France. What has taken place in our lives is that we have been permanently relocated. We can't relocate back. We have been permanently relocated from the domain of darkness, that country, to a totally different country, to a country uh, that is called the country of God's beloved son. And this means a few things. It means first for unbelievers that all your efforts of transferring yourself out of the kingdom of darkness just won't work. You can't pull it off. You don't have the ability to do it. Only God can transfer somebody. Catch the language. Who's the one delivering and transferring from the passage? Who's the one doing it? The Colossians? No. God's the actor again. He's delivered. He transfers. There's only one way out of the domain of darkness. There's only one way out of the realm of Satan. There is only one way out of judgment. There's only one way out of hell. That's if God transfers us out. He's the only one powerful enough to do it. And so again, every single believer has gone to God, repenting of sins, trusting in Jesus Christ, looking to God for salvation. And if you don't, Know the Lord Jesus Christ, I beg you to do just that today. Look to him to be transferred. But for believers, it's easy for us to forget this, right? It's easy for us to forget that we've actually been transferred into a different kingdom, and it's very easy for us to fall into the trap of trying to transfer ourselves out. And we say, Lord, I've, I know you've been gracious to me in the past, but I had a bad week. And so just give me a little bit of time. I need to work my way. I feel like I just relocated back to the United States. Now I need to get back to France. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to have a really good week this week. I'm going to work really hard. And I'm going to pray more and read my Bible more and be way kinder to other people. And by my niceness, I'm going to get back over to France. It's really easy to fall into that trap. And it's a really, it's a joy killing trap. It's something that just ruins all of our motivation for good works. It ruins our fellowship with God. What we need to remind ourselves at that moment is we're in France now. If we're going to call that God's uh, kingdom, the kingdom of his son. We're in France. We can't come. There are no flights back to America. (laughs) There are no foot. There's no way to get back into the domain of darkness once we've been delivered from it. And that is true of every one of us, beloved. It's true of every believer. We have a one-way ticket into God's kingdom, a one-way ticket into Jesus' kingdom. There are no return flights. And so that is the kingdom we live in. That's the kingdom we are in, even when we sin and even when we fail. 
And it's a kingdom that's built on forgiveness, which we're going to look at right now. So three things to thank God for. He qualified for us, in, us for an inheritance. He delivered and transferred us. And then third, he redeemed and forgives us, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the language of redemption, fairly straightforward. Freedom from slavery by the payment of a ransom price. And some have argued, and I think there might be a little to it, that the emphasis of this word in particular is the ransom price. It's the costliness of it, which is why the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter can say, Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. There's the emphasis on the price. Oh, we have redemption. What's the price? Jesus' blood. And Peter in 1 Peter 1, verse 18, can say, you are ransomed. Same word group. You were redeemed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So our redemption is costly. God has redeemed us. And the price that he paid is the price of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So in Christ, we have redemption. We also have the forgiveness of sins. Verse 14, just straightforwardly, the forgiveness of sins. Now we recite this in the Apostles' Creed, right? Every time we say it. We believe we have, in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. We believe that. That because we're in him, all of our sins are forgiven. But I want us to focus on just a little bit here before we look at the word forgiveness is just that notion of sin. The only way this message actually means anything is if we understand what we've been forgiven of. It's this three-letter word that most of the world would like to avoid talking about, but which the Bible spends a lot of time explaining and putting content in. Now, in our world, the language of sin is largely avoided and has been replaced with the word, just a few things, mistakes. We can go on about this, but here's just a few mistakes. We meant well, but the outcome was bad. This is an honest mistake. It's never sin. We just make mistakes as human beings. Sounds like a much better language to use in polite company, right? Or we have, secondly, not just mistakes, but personality quirks, right? There isn't anything really wrong with any of us. We just have different personalities, which sometimes clash. Each of us has to learn how to better manage our personalities, right? Take a personality test, figure out what your weaknesses are, work on them, and then we'll all get along a lot better. The third thing, that uh, the third way the world would describe sin is nurture. I don't sin, I'm just reacting to my upbringing. I was mistreated as a child, so if there's anything wrong with me, it's my parents or siblings or friends or teachers' fault, right? So we make mistakes, we have personality problems, or we had bad nurture. But God has something different to say about sin. Sin is a rebellious act of the will against God and other people. Sin is something I choose to do regardless of my personality or motives. I choose sin, and I alone am responsible for my sin. That's what sin is. We come into the world under the sentence of it from Adam, and we live in full accord with that as human beings. And even as God's people, we still continue to sin. R.C. Sproul said this of sin. When we sin, we not only commit treason against God, but we also do violence to each other. Sin violates people. By my sin, I hurt human beings. I injure their person. I despoil their goods. I impair their reputation. I rob from them of precious quality of life. I crush their dreams and aspirations for happiness. When I dishonor God, I dishonor all people who bear his image. Is it any wonder then that God takes sin so seriously? So what have we been forgiven of? Sin. What have we been forgiven of? 
things which are wrong that I willfully do, that I do of my own choice, that nobody forced me to do, but of my own problematic, sinful nature, I do on my own. Well, in this kingdom of God's beloved son, there's forgiveness for that. This is quite a kingdom that we've been transferred into. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness is the act of freeing and liberating from something that confines. It's to release, it's to let go. So Micah 7, 19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, right? That's pretty deep. This isn't like, hey, you'll put all my sins just beyond the shoreline about two feet down so we can pull them up anytime. They're readily accessible. Uh Uh-uh, the depths of the sea. You know, children, have you ever seen a plane flying overhead, like way up there, like 35,000 feet, like the seven-mile range? That's about how deep the ocean is. I'm not saying Micah knew how deep the ocean was. The Holy Spirit does. And just as high as a plane is above the earth, that's how deep the ocean is. That's where our sins are, in the depths of the sea. That's incredible forgiveness. That's an incredible release of them. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Where do the east and the west meet? They don't meet. We have been set free from our sins. East and west are as far apart from each other as possible. And when Jesus was on the cross, just before he suffered God's wrath, For our sins, he cried out what? Father, let them go. Release them. We translate it as Father, forgive them. But it's the same word here. We have the forgiveness of sins and redemption. In God's kingdom, in the kingdom of Jesus' beloved son, for sins, how are they regarded? For everybody in that kingdom, they're forgiven. They are let go, they're released. Why? Because Jesus took the punishment for them. You know, it's interesting, it always struck me that when Jesus is on the cross and he knows these three hours of darkness are coming, he knows that he's going to be forsaken by his father. And he cries out, what does he do before the lights turn off? What does he say? Father, forgive them. In other words, Father, let them go. Release them from their debt. What is he saying? What's the implication of that? Put me on the hook for him. Make sure all of your wrath and forsakenness comes on me. Let them go. Beloved, that's an incredible Savior. That's a Savior who's not some sort of victim. He's in charge of this. He and the Father are going to have a divine interaction where Jesus has become sin, he's become a curse, and the Father's going to treat him like it because he's taken all of our sins on him and his declaration, Father, forgive them. Beloved, we live in a kingdom where our sins are forgiven. Each believer is forgiven of their sins. If you live in America and we break the law, there's punishments, right? At least if we're caught, right? I'm guessing most of us might speed a little bit or a tad, or maybe you don't want to say that. I can tend to speed sometimes. And when we're caught, we have to pay the price, right? We live in a kingdom where there's laws. If you disobey the laws, there's a punishment. There's a penalty to pay. So much so that we can end up in jail in slavery, right? Back, Back in a prison, now we're enslaved to a cell that's like 10 by 10 or whatever the case may be. Here's God's kingdom. We sin, we're forgiven. We sin, Jesus paid the price. We sin, and we are released from our debt. That is the kingdom we live in. Do you see why Paul's thanking God? We're just 
Christians are people who give thanks to the Father. Why? Because he has redeemed us. He's given us redemption in Christ. What does that mean? He's forgiven our sins. This is the, this is the air we breathe in the kingdom of Christ. That when we sin, we are forgiven. Some of us might not be able to sing because we don't understand this as believers, or we do, but we don't live like it. And we just have had a hard time accepting forgiveness of sins. We're focused on, hey, I just really need to put this to death. That's, that's a good thing. We're focused on, man, I really blew it. That's not a, necessarily a bad thing to be convinced of. Yes, sin is blowing it. But, but how about this, forgiveness for it? How about this, beloved? Yeah, our sin's a big deal. We chose it. It's our responsibility. We did blow it. But there's forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there's no singing in the church. Without forgiveness, there's no singing in heaven. Without forgiveness, the song in our heart is just squashed. There is no song. But beloved, we live in a kingdom now where there's forgiveness for our sins. That's why we can give thanks. God's transferred us to a different kingdom, the kingdom of his son. And in him, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of our sins. To be forgiven of our sins is a great thing. Let me throw a quote from Spurgeon. If you would really know how great a thing sin is, remember what it costs Christ to be its forgiver. Go to Gethsemane and see what it costs Christ to bear it there. The sin that covered him with a bloody sweat was no trifle. Then follow him to Pilate's hall and hear the cruel thoughts falling on his blessed shoulders. See the soldiers take him away and nail him to the cross. There he hangs between heaven and earth to die for guilty sinners amid untold anguish, which no human eye could see and no mortal mind could understand. Yet there could never have been any forgiveness for sin if there had not been all those pangs on the part of the sinners substitute surely or if there had not been all those pangs on the part of the sinner's substitute surely sin must be a great thing to need such a great sacrifice to put it away and indeed what a savior we have let me just close with this don vickers he was a oregon police officer he was on his way to california in a motorcycle group and the group had to stop quickly he had to bring his motorcycle to a quick halt he laid it over Ended up with a collapsed lung, broken ribs, and a shoulder. He survived and recovered well. But while he was laying on the pavement, a lady named Sally stopped to help him. And she held him and talked to him kindly. And Don said, when I woke up on the pavement, she was holding my head. She, was very, cal- she very calmly talked to me and, and calmed me. Afterwards, she just walked off. It's important to me to find her and thank her. And the newspaper said this in an article in 1998. Don's wife, regarding... His desire to find Sally to thank her, she described it as almost an obsession. He just wanted to find this lady, Sally, to thank her. And his wife said it's almost an obsession of his. Beloved, let me throw this in different language. We've been redeemed. We have been brought from a kingdom where Satan reigned, and it's a cruel, tyrannical, miserable reign. We've been brought out of that kingdom and put in the kingdom of God's beloved son. We have been redeemed out of our sin and misery. We've been saved from hell and God's wrath. And now we have forgiveness of sins. And it ought to be almost an obsession. The Bible doesn't use that language, but it ought to just consume everybody. Of course it would. Who's undergone that experience to just thank God. 
to thank the Father throughout the day, not just in prayer, but in our lives and our thoughts, our attitudes. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. In all circumstances and always, we are to be those who are just thanking God for what he's done for us in Christ. Let's pray.